Welcome to the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. I'm continuing my conversation on the notion of governance, uh, but also looking at it really through the lens of the role of institutions. And in that respect, my guest is Alicia Ndlovu. She's a lecturer at the Department of Political Science at the University of Cape Town. Her research focuses on political accountability and sustainable development in resource-rich countries. Alicia, welcome to the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. It's nice to have you. Thank you so much, Sheila. I'm really happy to be here. So you advocate stronger institutions for extractive governance, especially at community level. Why? Yeah, and I think maybe just to start off, um, let me also just clarify that I, I'm not only advocating for stronger institutions, but stronger accountability institutions or accountability mechanisms. And I think so far, obviously, number one, this has been driven, you know, by by um, what we kind of all know that, you know, Africa, the African continent has abandoned natural resources, um, but really still struggles to meet some of its development goals. And I, I read a 2020 World Bank report that indicated that um, production of metals and minerals um, in Africa could increase by 500% by 2050 to meet the growing demand for clean energy technologies. So I thought to myself, well, resource-rich and resource-poor countries are faced with the same um, challenge of promoting human development and achieving economic sustainability. Yet the problems of inclusiveness and sustainability are more pronounced in resource-rich countries. So then how do we make sure um, that you know, many of the citizens that are in these countries are not left behind? And so that was one of the driving motivations for me to think about you know, um, investigating where the accountability mechanisms or institutions lie. So uh, you talk about accountability mechanisms. What do you mean by that? So the meaning of accountability in development policy, of course, is far from being precise, but I think there's consensus that accountability is crucial to development. So if I can put my hat as a political scientist, um, when we refer to political accountability, we are generally talking about the constraints um, on executive power and that comprises of mechanisms for holding leaders accountable um, and the means to apply sanctions. So these, this could be, for example, voting, you know, an election is an accountability mechanism um, because if citizens, for example, determine that a particular party hasn't really lived up to its promises, they have the right to vote um, for a different one. So that is an accountability mechanism. Um, and maybe to talk about institutions as well, um, a very prominent scholar, Douglas North, would define institutions as also the constraints um, we devise as human beings to structure political and economic as well as social interaction. Right. So um, quite apart from accountability mechanisms, you also uh, reference community. Now, community as a construct uh, is fluid. When you think of community, you might be thinking of a country. You might be thinking of uh, 
a village. You might be thinking for that matter of just the neighborhood. Let's assume we are thinking of community as sovereign states. When you look at sovereign states and institutions, governing extractives, given the extent of wealth of extractives on the continent, what are the differences and the similarities that you see in terms of the effectiveness or presence, absence of institutions? Hmm. I think uh, that's a very important uh, question because although I'm speaking about Africa as a unit and as a collective, um, the the region has you know a diverse set of institutions, different political configurations as well. Um, and I'm speaking about context where, for example, you may have at the higher level, if people think about you know political parties as um, you know organizations or institutions that represent them, you might find that in one particular country, there's only been one political party that has been in power since um, its first democratic elections. Whereas in other countries, there's a high level of political competition, uh, which in itself can be an accountability mechanism when the ruling party sort of knows that, you know, it, it, it has the potential to lose elections. So what we see in general is that many similar similarities do exist in terms of, um, you know, making sure that the state is actually, um, you know, basically having that kind of ownership over all the resources and the constitution being you know the highest level of determinant in terms of what we use the resources for and then you have different um you know legal frameworks um but the institutions that then get created to sort of regulate and make sure that there's compliance with the different acts can be different so let me use maybe ghana as an example um a formal accountability institution at the national level is what what they call the public interest and accountability committee and this is an independent statutory body that was mandated to promote transparency and accountability in the management of petroleum revenues specifically um, and to also monitor compliance with um, the petroleum revenue management act so this is not to mean that every country that produces oil on the continent would have such a body um, and so that's just one key example i can give in terms of some of the differences that exist Hmm. So you, you've spoken about uh, uh, countries assuming uh, democratic rule. I mean, we can debate whether or not uh, yes. democracy is the exclusive reserve of the Western world. I, I, I mean, I'm saying this, I guess I should put my head in the ring and say I don't agree. <laughs> I, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a Greek construct. Uh, it has its own basic principles, but that that those principles can only be found in the Western notion of democracy is a fallacy. Let me just be as clear as I can. Uh, but 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 uh, nevertheless, let's just take your, your, your word for it. If we assume then that there is this in change of guard and that at some point 60 years ago, African countries assumed democratic self-rule, what becomes then of the cultural institutions? How should we view the role of cultural institutions in governance today uh, in a place in which there was that change of guard, including to your point, uh, creation of constitutions, 
that don't that speak to the notion of constitution in the mm -hmm. Westminster style system of government and not say the Shona style of governance. Right. Uh, that's a very um, important question that we need to think seriously about. And I think you are correct to say um, under democratic regimes, um, you know, citizens then use different mechanisms such as voting, protesting, written responses to reward or sanction the government. However, I need to make a very important point as well that accountability is not limited to democratic regimes or political spaces, right? Yes, in politics and assuming this is a democratic regime, accountability can involve a, a relationship of representation through, for example, political parties. But representation, or let me rather say democracies are only one specific way of organizing representation and accountability relations, right? Um, and another point we need to make is that, um, for example, okay, if, if I think about traditional communities where there are chiefs, we know very well that with political parties, we kind of elect members and leaders, um, but in some circumstances, you know, chiefs are not necessarily elected, right? Um, that is a position that can be passed on through hereditary. But another point I need to make is the fact that you know, in, in modern day situations, even in South Africa, traditional systems have also somehow become part of the state apparatus. So for example, in South Africa, we since 2009, we have the Ministry of Cooperative Governance and Traditional Affairs, meaning that the point is to make sure that all institutions sort of adhere still to the constitutional mandate of the country. So we are seeing more and more of the fusion and not necessarily the separation of these so-called different institutions over time. Mm. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I, I think the, the fusion, even though I guess in some cases it happens um, informally, uh, where in others it may be more formal, conscious and structured. Uh, I, I think it's fair to say it's invariably part of the status quo. Uh, I do wish to, to ask you, you know, let us just assume that that fusion isn't so shall we say, um, smooth and that there is tension between uh, traditional institutions and, and, and modern. Uh, I wonder how your you know, experience, these are reconciled. And, and let me, before I, I, I hand over to you, let me be specific. Ownership mm -hmm. of natural resources, whether land or water, in many African countries uh, is communal. And yet when we look at extractives, uh, access to extractives is exclusive, albeit through a government license. I, I see immediately their attention in terms of uh, uh, access to property and property rights. How should modern day institutions approach this? Mm -hmm. and, and, and where it works, what is your experience of what makes it work? Right. I think one of the, okay, so if we had to define, um, you know, values in society as basically the fundamental beliefs that guide or motivate actions, then the key question is always for what purpose are these institutions created? You know, why do they exist? Why do we have a constitution? 
and why do we say that uh, the Ministry of Natural Resources uh, through the minister is the only one that can, you know, grant concession rights. Um, ultimately, for me, when there is conflict, these are the basic questions that need to be asked. You know, for what reason is this traditional institution um, existing? For what reason? And the best interest, I think, for the people should always prevail, right? The point is not to preserve institutions for institutions' sake, but to make sure that the outcomes outcomes are in line with improving people's livelihoods. And I feel like the system, or at least I would argue that the system that is more effective and efficient in serving the people should prevail. And within either system, accountability mechanisms should exist. Because um, if you think about myself maybe being uh, part of a community that is affected by mining, right? And if my complaint should be directed to the Department of Mineral Affairs, which let's say is headquartered, I don't know where, in, in, in a capital city, um, I'm unlikely to get there, right? So the question is, who is my, my first point of call? And I don't think there should be a conflict there if fundamentally the values are similar. And I would assume that the creation of these institutions um, the reason for it is always to improve human lives um, and to promote uh, not development that is just only sustainable, but also inclusive. So in that case, I always say we should go back to um, really asking the question of why do these institutions exist in the first place? Mm, that's important. In other words, uh, unless we go back to the very essence of why we have them, uh, we can lose direction in terms of uh, what is acceptable and what is not, or whether they are successful or failing, unless we have this constant uh, point of reference. So, you know, it's it's one thing to speak about institutions, uh, but having a lot of institutions might also be seen as a financial burden on the public coffers and also a skills burden on the human capital. At what point do we know we have enough? And, and, and at what point are we just growing uh, the public service for the sake of saying we have institutions? You just spoke about an additional department being added. Who said that the existing ones couldn't do that? Right. I think to answer your question, maybe bluntly, <laughs> uh, if, 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 if you ask the question, how do we know whether these institutions are enough or not, we know that they are not adequate because of the outcomes. There is just no way that, um, you know, I, I read an, again a, a report that was published to say, you know, the number of people living in extreme poverty globally reduced from 2 billion in 1990 to about 763 million in 2015. However, in Sub-Saharan Africa, this was the only region that recorded an increase in people living in extreme poverty from about 278 million in 1990 to 413 million in 2015. That's almost double. Now, what I think is that the institutions and perhaps the legal frameworks are adequate to some extent, quite impressive because in most cases, when countries like Ghana, um, you know, discover their oil, you have a lot of kind of external support, um, you know, either through the Norwegian government or other countries that have experience, you know, assisting the country, you know, to sort of um, devise these institutions. But I think, of course, we all know that, you know, many people will cite that implementation is an issue. 
But my key question remains, when the implementation does not okay or is not adequate, uh, who should be held accountable, right? So I really think, yes, sure, it would require resources, skills, and there's always a lack of capacity um, on the African continent, but what are we prioritizing? The PIAC that I referred to actually had limited funding at its inception, um, and the cabinet needed to decide whether this is an institution that they prioritized and were willing to support. Right, Because you need to understand that we have different um, accountability mechanisms in society, including the media, which relies a lot on access to information. Right, So if we are not able to then prioritize, then of course, no one is able to point a finger at anybody. And when I say accountability, I don't mean just sanctioning in terms of removing people from power. It also includes rewarding. Right, So if the, the, the citizens are benefiting and their needs are being met, you know, we keep the status quo because something is working. So it's not an issue of just saying uh, we are being harsh and want to just remove anyone and everyone, but it's to say that when things are working well, you don't necessarily need to be tweaking them. But if we have outcomes such as these that are being reported um, by organizations, then we need to take that seriously. It, it, it can be that poverty continues to increase, then something is not uh, going right. And I think accountability mechanisms are breaking down some way. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm listening to, I'm following your narrative. First, you started by saying we all know Africa's rich is natural resources, and I'm going to take away from it, though I might put a slight nuance to that. It, it, it's not the point. And then you said that uh, Southern Africa, uh, Sub-Saharan Africa's levels uh, numbers of people living beyond the poverty line, extreme poverty line, I think is the word you use, moved from 200 odd million to 400. <laughs> now, if you if you combine resource wealth, institutions that are presumably functioning, the outcome says something is wrong. So, I mean, I think we can say here and now that if the extractives are the driver of that uh, social welfare. It's not working. Is that fair? That is a fair point to make. And I think that's why I began by saying it's inclusive, but also sustainable. And we know that I think I can also argue that uh, development based on the extraction of resources is inherently unsustainable because, I mean, once they are finished, they are finished, <laughs> right? Um, but we still want to use these non-renewable resources as inputs for the transition, um, you know, towards green energy. So the point is, while we still have them, um, and, and also just to be fair and to support your point, um, you know, resources contribute um, for many countries, not even more than 10% of their GDP. So we are well aware of that. And so, yes, the idea of diversifying is as important. But I think we still cannot run away from accountability institutions, because even as we know that, you know, this kind of strategy is um, inherently unsustainable, how do we still ensure that when we get these revenues or when the government gets the rents that they're invested in productive assets? You know, we still cannot run away from our ability to be able to monitor and ensure that. Yeah, no, the order of magnitude of uh, resource wealth, much less its contribution to the economy, is not the point. The point is, it's a national asset, it's national wealth, it's finite, it has to be used responsibly, period, and it doesn't matter uh, what the relative, but I'm reminded of uh, 
the notion of community. So, you know, we, we, we discussed that it could be sovereign, could be whatever, but it could also be region. We, and when we speak of sub-Sahara, that is the, the sub-Sahara community, if you wish. And I wanted to make a contrast there. So you spoke earlier about, you know, systems of democracy. The assumption being that all things equal, if you have a, the right constitution, the laws and the institutions, and, the, and then people exercise their public right and hold others to account, account that all things told you get there. Mm -hmm. So that's that's sort of the sub-Saharan modus operandi, electoral, uh, democratic electoral systems, albeit varied. And then right. you, you go across to the Middle East and you go to the Gulf. There you have systems of monarchy, if you wish, again, albeit different. Now, tell me what you see when you look at the sub-Saharan mineral oil and gas wealth and then contrast it with what we see in the Gulf and what those communities, albeit sovereign, have done with their wealth and what that tells us as a political scientist about the merits of democracy. Right. I mean, that's a very interesting observation because, you know, when we think about the rentier state theory, I mean, it, it came from that idea that oil countries in the Middle East, there are scholars who made arguments that, you know, the reason why they are not democratic is precisely because of their oil wealth. And that there is actually um, the relationship between the citizen and the state is broken. Um, because the state does not rely on, you know, citizens for its income. Um, and this is the so-called taxation theory, where basically the argument is if a state, you know, uh, relies a lot on tax revenue, they would be more accountable because citizens, of course, would demand or they would want to know what are you using with, you know, the tax that I am contributing. Whereas if the state relies largely on um you know, external revenue, either from, let's say, foreign aid or relies on resource revenue, then it becomes less accountable because that direct accountability link is broken. So that is usually this, the, the argument that exists about, you know, explaining why the Middle East is not necessarily democratic by the standards um, that we have. But like I said initially, when I said the idea of accountability is not, I would never argue that it's limited to democracy. I, I don't think so. I think, um, you know, again, to repeat, democracies are only one specific way of organizing representation and accountability. And the question again becomes, you know, for what reason are these institutions created? Because even in the Middle East, institutions, a monarchy is an institution, right? And so if once again, that development is inclusive and it's sustainable, I wouldn't say that then it needs to be destroyed or more, more institutions need to be created on top of that. But the key question is, should citizens not be uh, satisfied with the benefits or they think you know, they are not really being included and they do not have access to basic facilities? Mm -hmm. How do we hold those in the position of power accountable? That question mm -hmm. remains whether we are in a democratic or non-democratic setting. Yeah, so so you being uh, a researcher then uh, would appreciate the, the notion of uh, uh, the, an underpinning variable. So it seems there that the underpinning variable is not your system of government, but whether or not the public is empowered and has a voice 
and can hold those in power accountable. That seems to me to be uh, the starting point rather than a, a system. But I, I, I'm very intrigued about this uh, linking of taxation to public voice, because uh, the assumption is that the 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 pipe piper names the tune here. I pay you, you you work for me. It's my money. But <laughs> couldn't we say that of oil and gas? I mean, these are public resources, and so in my view, the public coffers uh, may get revenue from citizens paying tax but they may also gain revenue from using a national asset and right. turning it into cash. Either way, what they have in their possession belongs to the public. Is that not right? You, you are 100% correct. And I think that is why it's so urgent to then determine where the accountability mechanisms lie, because the, there is a direct relationship. So Speaking about institutions again, I think you're correct to say the starting point is exactly asking the question of where the accountability mechanisms, but these mechanisms exist within institutions. So I'll give another example. Um, I, I, I live in South Africa. Um, I operate within a space where I vote for a political party and not necessarily for a member of parliament. The political party itself decides um, who goes into parliament. But you have other countries that use a first-past-the-post system or majoritarian system where basically, you know, an MP has to campaign, has a constituency, and the people know which house to go and knock, you know, um, to determine, you know, what have you, you know, been been doing in parliament. That doesn't exist for me. In fact, if 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 I need to, to punish uh, my representative, it's basically voting for a different party altogether and not necessarily changing the MP. So what I'm trying to say now is there are these broader macro level sort of political institutions within which we, we operate um, that can obviously influence this link between citizens and the state. And what you are saying right now is quite critical because, again, I go back to the issue of access to information, but also understanding. The extractive sector is a complex uh, machine to govern. It's complicated. In most cases, even citizens who are affected by mining do not even have a clear understanding of who the stakeholders are or how, you know, you know, the revenue, what is the percentage that goes to the government. So these are all things that need, um, you know, a certain level of, 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 of literacy and skills right, to a point where even civil society organizations themselves might not understand the complicated laws around governing um, the extractive industry. So what I'm trying to say now is with tax, if I am paying tax, that seems like a simple calculation where the state has told me that if you fall between this bracket, this income bracket, this is how much we demand from you. And so I pay that, it's a direct payment to the revenue authority. Um, but when it comes to the extractive um, industry, of course the state is owning this on behalf of us as the communities, but do we really have a clear understanding of what's really going on? I, don't, I do not think so. And hence this idea of representation becomes even so important and also understanding as community members, where, who do we hold accountable? Is it clear um, in the different, um, mining acts as to if, for example, we get a sense that we are not really um, benefiting, who do we point a finger at? 
Should it be at the macro level where it's a matter of just voting a political party out? No, because once again, there are many countries on the continent where the country has been governed by just one political party. So that mechanism might not be as effective. And uh, to your point, in some cases, uh, like Botswana, where I live, where we've had one party, we are also cited as a better example of uh, managing mineral resources. So there you are. It seems to me there is somewhere along the line a disconnect between the pol the political institutions versus institutions, period. Uh, <laughs> because political institutions mimic a political system. But accountability cuts across all systems. And, and, and therefore, my sense is that a focus on accountability that is specific to a system is more important than the system itself. But here's my last uh, question to you. I'm mindful in the extractives that um, impacts cuts across the national community, the provincial community, and the uh, community where the physical footprint is. But, you know, public institutions don't follow that line. You know, in a way, they are the reverse. They start with head office. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and by the time the trickle-down effect in terms of access and public voice reaches your average village, you could barely see a government. I mean, it's just not visible, not audible, not recognizable. Hmm. This, this uh, lack of accessibility, this lack of also, which then of course translates into lack of access, uh, you know, lack of voice and lack of agility. In the extractives and in your view, how problematic is it to achieving that system of effective accountability mechanisms? 